Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom Sweeney, and on this edition of Maritime Ireland, why are seafarers forgotten? Seafarers are forgotten. Ships come in and out of port 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, without stop. That's easy to forget about. Captain Steve Malone, Secretary of the Nautical Institute in Ireland, will discuss the challenges facing seafarers, on whom the world's trade depends. In actual fact, I first heard about all of this sort of activity uh, in 1957 when I was 13 and my father uh, brought a half-deck fishing boat which we converted into a motor sailor over a couple of years to Rings End. When and why English trawlers were built in that great Dublin maritime centre Rings End. Maritime author and historian Cormac Loth will tell us how Brixham trawlers came to Irish town. And would you become an angling citizen scientist? We're collecting data on all species and um, the main focus uh, in terms of the European uh, Commission is um, the cod, pollock, uh, bass and the so-called elasmobranchs, the sharks, rays and the highly migratory species like some of the tunas as well. So we're using the opportunities to collect information on all species because in due course that will be useful because we need to understand how these fish communities work together. Fisheries Ireland is asking for anglers to help with this research. William Roach will outline how you can help. Also on this edition, why are lifeboat crews reluctant to accept recognition for what they do? a roundup of the month's maritime news and a look back at marine history of the month. Ireland is an island nation defined by its maritime history and development. Maritime Ireland brings you coverage of the relationship with the sea that surrounds this island nation. The world's trade depends on seafarers. If there weren't seafarers, there wouldn't be trade. That is a truism, a statement that is obviously true. But how much thought is given to seafarers and how they impact on our daily lives? I was invited to a conference at the National Maritime College in Ringeskiddy on the edge of Cork Harbour, which had a title that intrigued me. Seafarer Wellness. Are the signals being read? It was organised by the Nautical Institute, the International Maritime Organisation, by the Irish Institute of Master Mariners and the College. It was revealing about the challenging conditions in which seafarers work and the stress they're subjected to. Captain Steve Malone first went to sea in 1995. He's secretary of the Nautical Institute in Ireland. The whole maritime trade is based around seafarers. If there wasn't seafarers, there wouldn't be trade. So the, the ships are moving from A to B, and from to, go, for, to go from A to B, obviously there's ships, crews, captains, right down to the able seamen and the, and the OS, the ordinary seamen. So seafarers should be centre to all activities. In the past, um, because it's a multi-million dollar operation, the ships became the, the, main, the main item, the asset. 
how, how valuable was the asset. The industry is starting to change and, and forward thinkers are pushing the seafarers forward to say, without seafarers, shipping doesn't happen. So seafarer wellness is critical and we need to focus on seafarer wellness. We can't just lock them away and have the forgot, forgotten workforce. It's very, it's imperative that we keep them at the forefront and we look after them because without seafarers, there's no international trade. And of course, seafarers are effectively locked away because they're out of sight, out of mind while they're doing their work. Yes, that's correct. Seafarers are forgotten. Ships come in and out of port 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year without stop. That's easy to forget about if you're just sitting at home waiting on your Amazon shipment. How did it get here? It didn't come by plane. It came by ship. It's critical. Seafarers are the only ones that keep the maritime trade going and they are the most climate responsible people because to operate a ship is much different than operating an airline and the, and the emissions and everything that comes from that must be realised that this, it's climate, the climate responsibility of the seafarers, seafarers and the shipping industries is very high. The problems identified there at the conference included exercise, uh, mental stress, paperwork came across as a very big one. Obviously there's the separation from family, the social interaction, a lot of issues identified. Well, there is a big focus now on health and nutrition uh, and with technology as well, you're talking about internet, internet availability. So you can Zoom, link, talk to your family at home. Seafarer wellness is very much based on that. When I first went to sea in 1995, I had to wait for the letter coming every four to five weeks when we got to port. Now, people ashore expect to be able to talk to their loved ones across the other side of the world by just opening a Zoom call or a Teams meeting or something like that. But it's very difficult on a ship. Uh, internet links are by satellite they're not by ground based systems so they're expensive and it's shipping companies at the forefront of driving these costs down and opening up the access so it's not just email it's video, it's voice um, and, and connectivity is extremely important on wellness we all like to be able to pick up the phone and talk to our, our loved ones if we were living in Australia that's very easy if you're at sea in the middle of the Pacific it's slightly more difficult and that's why wellness and, and the connectivity and opening up the technology to the seafarer is critical there were examples identified today mental stress because of the periods away the long times at sea loneliness as we said, paperwork and fatigue. Yes, the, the long time at sea, you know, we had one of the seafarers that came on earlier on and, and she's a captain at sea and she works four weeks on, four weeks off or six weeks on, six weeks off. That's very good because it's what we call a back-to-back type arrangement and that can work in the offshore sector of somebody that's close in working on in the oil and gas industry. But if you're on a bulk carrier going from somewhere in northern Australia all the way to America and then back to... Uh, Japan and then on again your trip could be four to six months and then you might only get two months off or three months off so there's different standards across the international fleet and four or five months away from home is a very long time you lose that ability to connect with the people around you so the wellness element again I have to go back to it is connectivity and it's nutrition it's fitness and if we start to bring what we expect ashore like living and working in a city or the countryside and we transfer back over onto the shipping 
but it's problematic. It's always difficult. There's different standards throughout the world. There's different customs, as in um, port authorities that may restrict people going ashore for security reasons. So you have to get through that. You have to get the message that the seafarer is centric and you have to look after the seafarer. I noticed, because we're talking in the Maritime, the National Maritime College here in Ringoskiddy, a lot of young people there who are obviously students at the college. So despite the challenges that have been identified, it still seems a career that's interesting young people. Oh, I, 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 can't, I can't undersell the career. I, I spent some of the best days of my seafaring career at sea. I love it. I, I don't, I'm, not alone, I'm no longer at sea, but I champion it for everybody else. There, you don't have to spend, you don't have to join when you're 17 and, and retire when you're 65. Uh, you can join when you're 17, 18 years old. Spend 15 years at sea and give give it all to your company during that period but then come ashore and look after the ships from ashore go into the insurance industry go into the pharmaceutical industry it's all open for me and the more we talk about seafarers the more people ashore and factories and industry are realizing we're very dynamic and the crossover of positions is much is it's much easier these days so you don't have to look at it for a job for life who has a job for life anymore nobody but I spent 16 years fully at sea, and I loved every minute of it. I went from deck cadet to master. We're captain of, a, of an offshore vessel. I loved every minute of it, although I was only relief captain. But things come around, and if I had stayed a bit longer, I could have done a lot more things. But an opportunity came for me to come ashore. But I'm still connected to the industry. You're not losing it. You're not a failure if you come ashore. You're championing the seafarer of the next generation to come, and that's all we want. You're president of the Nautical Institute in Ireland, Steve, and it's joined with the uh, Master Mariners organisation, their representative, their institute, and the college. So, as you've been saying, this whole wellness concept is something that hasn't been addressed before in the industry. It's now very important. Well, as you always champion, Tom, we're an Ireland nation, so we have to move on. And, and, and we're two organisations in Ireland. Ireland's a small seafaring nation. The Master Mariners and the Nautical Institute, we join together to do these, these conferences to highlight the, 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 the whole industry. Today we're talking about seafarer wellness. Tomorrow we could be talking about autonomous vessels, but the autonomous vessels are still manned by seafarers from ashore. You know, it's it's it, the, the the whole industry is joined together, and and, and that's 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 how we, we we work. You know, and finally, you'd obviously recommend it as a career. I would. I have an eleven-year-old boy. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't hesitate to tell him to go to sea to enjoy it for a while. He doesn't have to stay for it forever. But yes. It's a great career. You could be on a you could be on a, a super yacht, or you could be on a gas tanker, or a, a chemical carrier, a cruise ship, a bulk carrier. You know, it, 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 the industry is so vast. But your ticket, your maritime ticket, will get you onto all of them vessels. So you know, the the world is your oyster, as they say. Captain Steve Malone, secretary of the Nautical Institute in Ireland, with a positive attitude to seafaring. I noted at the conference the number of young people, male and female students at the college and young naval service personnel who've chosen a seafaring career. As Steve Malone made very clear, there should be more concern and understanding of and for seafarers. Without them, there would be no maritime trade. And how would that affect life ashore? Now there's a thought to consider. 
Last month's programme, I said that you can expect to hear a lot about the spatial squeeze in the immediate future, all to do with increasing competition for space offshore as wind energy developers seek areas for generating turbines, and those who already use that space find themselves pushed out. There's no disagreement about the need for wind energy generation, but how will the various sectors achieve agreement? The fishing industry suspects that not enough consideration is being given by government to protecting fishing areas. And the Norwegian Marine Insurance Representative Organisation, Det Norsk Veritas, DNV, founded in Oslo in 1864, has published a study of increasing demand for ocean space. Ocean's Future to 2050 says that growth in offshore wind power will, by the middle of this century, require ocean space equivalent to the entire landmass of Italy. That's the spatial squeeze. You heard the phrase here. When I first worked in Dublin as a journalist on the staff of the Irish Press newspaper, I got to know Ring's End, and buying fish and chips there, heard that the area was also known as Rayton, reflecting its history as a fishing village and the catching of a popular species, Ray. A short distance from the city centre, Ringsend was originally a long, narrow peninsula separated from Dublin by the River Dodder estuary, known on early maps as Rinon, the point of the tide. Local history also refers to it as Irish Town, reflecting a time when native Irish were kept outside Dublin city walls. It's a special place, resonant with maritime history, which Cormac Lowe, the maritime author and historian, chronicles in his new book about the rings and sailing and fishing smacks, the Brixham trawlers that were brought to and later built there. They were very unique to uh, the south of England initially. Uh, there was something that blossomed after the Napoleonic Wars. There were very large gaff-rigged wooden vessels of about 40 tons, cutter-rigged, and they had great sea-keeping sea abilities. They could keep the sea in practically all weathers and fish, uh, keep fishing when other vessels would be heading back into port. And they could fish in very deep water uh, with the sort of gear that they used. They had mechanical winches on board, and they varied a lot from the type of vessels that were... Uh, around locally in Dublin and the east coast of Ireland generally. So when the first of them arrived in Ringsend in 1819, they proved very successful, and they were copied extensively by a lot of the locals, both the methods of fishing and the type of boats that were built. And a great many of them were subsequently built in Ringsend along the style of the Brixham trawlers. That was an amazing development back then, wasn't it, that an Irish port like Ringsend would go all the way to Brixham to get trawlers? It's interesting to look at the history of the whole uh, beam trawling under sail scene uh, at the time because it it began with the formation of a fishery company by a group of uh, enterprising businessmen in Dublin who could see the potential for uh, a bit of profit in the extensive fishing uh, grounds that were available, rich fishing grounds that were available on the East Coast. And they knew that a, a better type of boat existed uh, in Brixham. Uh, they launched a fishery company that was subscribed to by public subscription, and they sold shares in it, and they sent over to Brixham and bought seven boats initially uh, that were brought 
over to Dublin, along with our crews and many of the uh, the families of the crewmen, a uh, great many of whom settled subsequently in Ringsend. Uh, there were some initial setbacks uh, with the locals, but it was very swiftly realised that this was a much superior way of fishing and a much more efficient way of fishing to bring fish from the deeper waters to the Dublin market that had never been sort of brought before by the local fishing boats that uh, didn't have that capability. Uh, the fishery company folded up after about 20 years, but at that stage, a great many more boats had come over from Brixham along with their families, and uh, they stayed in Ringsend. Over the period of 100 years, it lasted for, from about 1819 to 1919, when, when the last of the boats simply went away. Uh, in the 1920 um, registers, there are no trace of the, the, the Ringsend sailing smacks. But it was a very, very successful period for fishing. Uh, it, it dwindled away uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, after the First World War, largely due to the inroads made on the fishing by uh, motorised trawling and by steam trawling also. But throughout the whole of the period, over the 100 years, there were about, I reckon, about a couple of hundred, between 250 and 300 of these type of vessels. Many of them were built in Ringsend subsequently. But there were a great many boat-building yards along the bank of the Dollar River in Ringsend uh, that predated the uh, arrival of the, the trawlers. And it was a natural transition to start building them locally, although there was a great interchange of boats and people uh, between Ringsend and Brixham over the 100 years, uh, some of which lasted until quite recently, actually. It's an amazing piece of history to look back on to see how the industry has disappeared, really, hasn't it, in fishing from that part of Dublin? Indeed, indeed, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and there were a number of reasons for that, I suppose. It, uh, trawling on their sail, although it, it didn't die out completely, like there was still a lot of it done into the 20th century, but the larger vessels simply weren't viable anymore. A great many people who would have uh, who would have taken up fishing on their sail in these Brixham trawlers gravitated towards the new steam trawlers that had come in around about in the end of the 19th century there were about five big steam trawlers operating out of Dublin and many of the people who would have gone into trawling on their sail gravitated towards them they were able to fish in deeper waters they had ice facilities on board stay at sea longer and fish in all sorts of weather and with a consequent uh, guarantee probably of a better type of uh, way of earning money for the fishermen all of that gone now, unfortunately. Yes, indeed. A lot of our fisheries has uh, sort of gone astray for a number of reasons, particularly inshore fishing. Uh, very little of that done anymore. It's all great big ocean-going vessels now to be seen in places like Holt, where formerly you would have had quite a lot of smaller boats and various other boats around the country also. Your book is an amazing record of all that period, Cormac. It must have taken you quite a bit to research and write it. Well, I wrote it over. A, a, I went. Uh, my son lives in Malta, and I went there for a few weeks uh, three years ago, and I wrote it during that period. But I've been adding to it ever since, and it's only just recently been published. But in actual fact, I first heard about all of this sort of activity uh, in 1957 when I was 13, and my father uh, brought 
a half-deck fishing boat, which we converted into a motor sailor over a couple of years, two rings end. And there were a great many old uh, fishermen that used to congregate around the steps near York Road. And I first heard about the fishing smacks, as they used to call them, from their conversations back then. And I've had an interest in it ever since. But it was difficult to uh, to find out information uh, as I went along. I did gather up some information over the years and jotted it down. So you can say I've been collecting information about the, uh, the, the information that's in the book uh, for a great many years, all right. But with the advent of the Internet, it made a lot of more information available, such as the digitized records of the registrations of the vessels in the Lake of the Maritime, uh, Mercantile Navy and Maritime lists, and also the, uh, the crew lists and agreements uh, of the sailing trawlers on various other vessels that have been published uh, recently digitized versions of them by our own national archives. Uh, they provided a wealth of information on all of that, plus the fact that the newspapers are readily available online now, uh, whereas before you had to trudge into the National Library or the, any one of the libraries and read dusty old hard copies or microfilms, which were fairly difficult compared to word searching uh, in the, news, the digitized newspaper archives online. So all of that provided the wealth of information, uh, plus a lot of other sources. Indeed. And how is the book available? How can one get it, can purchase it, Cormac? It's a very well-produced book, and it proved rather expensive to uh, to produce. Uh, there's only 500 copies available so far, and the, uh, the, the cost of publication has sort of precluded uh, putting it into the shops, I'm afraid. So it's going up on eBay presently, and it'll be available there. Uh, hopefully, if they sell out, we might get a, a second run to make more copies available. We had a, a very successful book launch in the Poolbeg Yacht and Boat Club in Ringsend, and we sold a great many of the 500 there. Great attendance at that, and great interest shown in it. Of course, uh, a great many of the books were bought by the locals, many of whom are descended from the Brixham fishermen. Cormac Lowth, who served in the Merchant Navy, is also an artist and his new book's cover illustration is his painting of the Kinkora. That was the last sailing trawler to be built in Ringsend. His book, Ringsend Sailing Trawlers, with some history of boat building in Ringsend, is at present a limited edition of 500 copies. Available on eBay or by contacting him on email cormacloth69 at gmail.com That's Cormac, L-O-W-T-H-69 at gmail.com You're listening to Maritime Ireland, reporting on this island nation's relationship with the sea that surrounds us. John O'Callaghan here with the monthly roundup of Maritime News. The Department of Transport is reviewing the Code of Practice for the safe operation of recreational craft. It was last reviewed five years ago. The new review is to take into account legislative and other developments in recent years, according to the Department, which is inviting public submissions. The Code of Practice provides information about legislation applying to recreational craft. 
as well as safety advice and best practice guidance for owners, operators and users of recreational craft in Irish coastal and inland waters. The review will include looking at ways to improve understanding of the content for users. Submissions close on Wednesday the 30th of November. For the first time, shoreline change around the coast of Northern Ireland is being checked. This is a project carried out by the Professor of Coastal Studies at Ulster University, Andrew Cooper, and a team of colleagues. They are measuring shoreline change, involving coastal erosion from the 1830s until the present day. It's a fascinating study of how the coastline has changed. Earliest coastal maps of the region date from 1830. He says the data assembled will give a good indication of just what changes the sea may be making on the coastline. Now this is an unusual project, dropping hydrophones into the waters of Greenland. An Irish artist, Siobhan MacDonald, is part of the team involved in the project, the purpose of which is to record the sounds of melting iceberg. Did we ever think such recordings would be possible? Well, if the project is successful, and it will be going on over the next two years, the hydrophones will capture the sounds of melting Arctic sea ice and other sub-aquatic audio noises every hour under the icebergs. The international expedition intends to use the recordings in scientific research to explore human impact on the world's oceans. Artist Siobhan MacDonald is hoping to use them as part of a musical score to be created with a composer and possibly forming a multimedia presentation. I reported the launching of a new vessel from Artlo Shipping last month. Well, that County Wicklow company comes into the news again this month. The figurehead from the former National Sailing Training Vessel Asgard 2 has been donated to Arklow Maritime Museum by the company. Asgard 2 was owned by the state, but as far as Arklow people were concerned, she was their ship because she was built in Arklow by the local company John Tyrrell and Son, the epitome of traditional Arklow shipwright skills from design to construction, according to the museum. Asgard sank off France in September 2008, believed to have been hit below the waterline by a submerged hazard. Her notable figurehead was Gráinne Whale, the legendary Irish pirate queen, and there's a story to how it is now in the Arklow Museum. Sometime before Asgard II sank, it had been damaged and removed for repair. Somehow it was deemed beyond repair, but sculptor Norbert Roden was not convinced by that decision. A man with Arklow in his blood too. He has reconstructed the original figurehead with, according to the museum, remarkable success. When it became known that the repaired figurehead was for sale, Arklow Shipping Limited contacted the museum inquiring if they would like to have it in their collection. You can guess what the answer was. Such an iconic piece should not be lost to the town. Arklow Shipping acquired and donated it to the museum. So, once again, the people of Arklow can take pride and pleasure in the memory of Asgard too. The figurehead will not be on display for some time. Paintwork and other tasks need to be carried out, and the museum staff must decide how best to display the figurehead as a centrepiece of a dedicated Asgard II display. Over the years, we in the museum, mainly through the generosity of the Tyrrell family, have accumulated a great many artefacts relating to Asgard II. This is the icing on the cake according to the museum. And of course, had it not been damaged, it would probably be at the bottom of the sea with the wreck of Asgard. The Marine Stewardship Council is an international non-profit organisation which sets standards for sustainable fishing. 
Its headquarters are in London and it's marking its 25th year of existence. The Worldwide Fund for Nature was the key mover in its foundation. It has a staff of 140. Fisheries which engage with the MSC to get its certification approval for sustainable and safe fishing are responsible for 74% of the wild white fish catch, 57% of tuna, 83% of global wild salmon catch and 14% of global wild lobster and crab catch. Over the past year, the sustainable seafood industry has once again shown great resilience in the face of disruption, according to the chief executive of MSC, as it is known, Rupert Howes. The industry has shown continued resilience in the face of the COVID pandemic and supply chain issues arising from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he said, reporting that the volume of catch from MSC certified fisheries increased in 2021-22 to 12 million tonnes, or 15% of all assessed wild marine catch. The Nautical Institute has joined the Ocean Navigation Project to reduce maritime accidents. Around 3,000 maritime incidents occur every year in the European Maritime Fleet. 28% of those are categorised as severe or very severe. The Ocean Project is focused on improving awareness in navigation, to reduce the frequency of severe accidents like collisions and groundings and to mitigate ship strike risks to marine mammals. The aim is to create an improved understanding of accident causes, reducing human, environmental and economic losses, according to the Institute. The Port of Cork cruise ship season had 115,000 cruise passenger visitors this year and even more are expected next year. The last cruise ship to berth at the Cove Cruise Terminal Closing the season was the Fred Olsen Cruise Line's MS Borealis. The port has predicted that next year more than 100 cruise ships will call. The Department of Transport has introduced a new online ship radio licence and EPIRB registration system. This replaces the existing paper form and email application processes. It is available at the Irish Maritime Radio Licence System, IMRAD. Look up the department's website for more information. I reported previously the staffing difficulties in the naval service and how an entire class of electrical trainees were leaving for the private sector after being trained. Well, the result of that is that the service will have to spend over 1 million euros on external electrical contractors to service its ships in port because of the shortage of staff. Contractors will not be expected to go to sea. They will carry out maintenance on ships in port. And to conclude this month we record the death of a stalwart of the Maritime Institute of Ireland. Pat Sweeney was a former president and distinguished volunteer of the Institute and its National Maritime Museum at Dunleary for over 50 years. He had also edited the Institute's newsletter for over 30 years and was also a volunteer at the Stella Maris Seafarers Club in Beresford Place, Dublin. A wonderful, knowledgeable and courteous man he will be much missed said the Institute's current president, Joe Farley, in a tribute. And so that's the end of this month's news roundup from Maritime Ireland. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. There are 250,000 recreational anglers in Ireland, according to Fisheries Ireland. That's the state agency for management of freshwater and coastal fish stocks within 12 nautical miles of the shoreline. William Roach is Senior Research Officer there, running a project assessing fish stocks, working with the SRI Ireland through the Irish Marine Recreational Angling Survey. 
It's collecting data on locations and volumes of fish caught. Shore anglers, those fishing from small boats, and charter boat anglers are being asked to help by reporting their catches, effectively becoming citizen scientists to build up a picture of coastal fish stocks. William Roach has been telling me how the project, which started in September, is going. It's working out very well, Tom. Um, Ireland, like all other member states, are obliged to collect uh, and report uh, data on, on recreational fish catches. And uh, Inland Fisheries Ireland, uh, for whom I work, have the role of protecting and managing and conserving our sea angling resources. So uh, we're collecting these data on behalf of uh, Ireland Incorporated and reporting for the Green Team. The programme is aimed at something like 250,000 recreational anglers. That's a lot, of, a lot of people. And what you're doing is asking them to record their catches and their releases and put them into what's going to amount to a, a pretty vast data bank. Absolutely. So we've got an electronic tool, like a digital app, which anglers can use. Um, as you say, we've a lot of anglers. We've about 3,000 kilometres of coastline to uh, to try and survey. So we've a twin track approach with a survey ongoing, and then this app, which is encouraging anglers to um, record their own data. And for that, we will obviously collect uh, information on their catches and when they're most active, the species that they're catching and the numbers that they're both catching and releasing. And um, that then will come to us and we can parse that out and and, uh, report it to the the European Commission in due course for for fishery management purposes. The, The design here is to collect as much information as possible to try and ensure that we have um, sustainable fisheries. So if we know what anglers are catching and we can compare it to to uh, the, the commercial side, we can get an understanding of, of our uh, sustainability. And anglers then have a diary, a diary that they can use themselves for their own purposes and they can refer back to it uh, at any stage over the course to see where they've been fishing and what they caught and maybe what, what gear worked best for them. Now, this is an entirely voluntary project, isn't it? You're asking for the help of anglers. How long will it go on for? We would see this as being the backbone of this survey effort uh, for, for uh, as far as, as, as we can see into the distance, uh, in the absence of anything else. Um, as you can appreciate, trying to survey 3,000 kilometres of coastline uh, with so many anglers is rather difficult. So this will be a really important plank to the survey. And um, as I say, we would see it as the backbone of our efforts into the future. So we're encouraging anglers to get involved as much as possible because I suppose anglers have a huge role to play here. They're very observant, they're uh, responsible and they're aware and, and they're, they're working or, or rather fishing in the marine environment. And it's an opportunity to to engage here as kind of full stakeholders and to be active as, as uh, citizen scientists in their own right. For, for everybody's benefits, for the fish, the benefits of the fish, for the benef- benefits of angling, and for the benefit of Ireland generally. Well, it's mainly sea anglers, Tom. So what we're focusing on here is the marine stocks. So the, 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 the issue here is, is um, that there's, there up to, to date, there's been very little by, by way of reporting. What we have reporting on uh, salmon and sea trout inland, 
the on the marine side it was somewhat of an unknown and all the all european member states are with a coastline are obliged now to report so this is uh, ifi's approach to doing it and it's a standard approach that's been rolled out in the uk and as I say, we have a twin track approach with uh, on-site surveys as well. They're undertaken on a random basis. And the Angler Diary then allows the, the, the anglers to um, voluntarily report um, and um, be, I suppose, be active in, in, in the sphere of, of uh, contributing data to, um, to a worthy project that, you know, we hope will look towards the... the uh, Addressing the sustainability issue uh, around uh, species, so we're getting we're getting reports on all the different species that are being caught. So as it's concentrating on sea angling, then obviously stocks like um, migratory species tuna, but also stocks such as um, sea bass, rays, pollock, sharks, cod, they'll all come into the equation, obviously. Yes, we're we're collecting data on all species, and um, the main focus uh, in terms of the European uh, Commission is um, the cod, pollock, uh, bass, as you say, and the so-called elasmobranchs, the sharks, rays, and the highly migratory species like some of the tunas as well. So they're focused on those. But we're we're using the opportunities to collect information on all species because in due course that'll be useful because we need to understand how these fish communities I suppose work together. Um and you know a lot of a lot of the fish are returned. We have a very high level of returns actually the, the there's over eighty percent in terms of the diary uh what's coming back to us at the moment, eighty percent of all fish are returned. But the, the, the main the main species retained are mackerel. Um and that's that's driven um the, the, the basic retention. So it's it's uh it's certainly we're we're gleaning a lot of information and a lot of understanding we didn't have. Now, ESRI Ireland, which is involved in geographic information systems, is with you in this project. And that's also part, isn't it, of what's going on in the Irish Marine Recreational Angling Survey. So it's a pretty wide survey with a lot of backup and data compilation. It is. Uh, ESRI Ireland are are one of uh, Ireland's leading providers of, of, of kind of digital services. And we're working with them. Uh, uh, closely and we've developed this app which uh, has been rolled out to anglers for this IMREC uh, survey, Irish Marine Recreational Angling Survey and uh, it's a very fruitful uh, project for us. It's We've, we've, we've uh, designed a, an app that's very user friendly and works both for ourselves and for anglers and uh, it, it provides us with, with kind of an overview of what's happening very, very quickly. And it's, it's, a, it's a very functional and, and easy to use uh, app. And we've got videos on our website as well that you can view how to use it. And uh, it, it's very, very straightforward. With more anglers collecting data, obviously, you'll build up a pretty extensive picture of fish stocks. Could I ask, while it's concentrating on sea angling, what about shore anglers who'd be on the shore and would probably, you know, see marine stocks from that point of view? Yes, well, we're covering all sectors. The the marine uh, angling sector comprises three main sectors. You'd say the shore anglers, um, which are included here, the uh, small boat uh, anglers, again, small craft that would probably go out mostly in the summer in inshore waters, kayakers as well, 
uh, all welcome. And then we have the charter boat sector. So there's three sectors and they each would catch uh, different types of species in different sort of settings. So we're uh, working across the entire sector to collect the information for all fish uh, from the shore right out to, um, if, you, if, you, if you want to say, offshore waters as well, um, where, where you might catch your sharks and your bigger species. So finally, the message, William, really is this is a great time for anglers to get involved as citizen scientists, marine scientists, as you say, and get involved in this project. It is. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, an opportunity to uh, get involved heavily here, uh, collect your own diary, which will work for you and maybe help you to, to kind of uh, manage your fishing and understand your own fishing patterns because it's all mapped out for you on your, on your personal uh, app, and also to contribute to a broader project which is working across Europe and with a view to increasing the sustainability of stocks, which will benefit Ireland, it'll benefit the, the fish, and it'll benefit anglers. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a win-win. The more we know, the better we can manage and the better we can understand our populations. And for those who will get involved, all the information on the website of Inland Fisheries. That's right, under under IMREC, I-M-R-E-C, so you're Inland Fisheries Ireland, and uh, put in IMREC into the into your into your search engine, it'll come up for you, and it's very easy to join. Uh, we'll, we'll once you once you uh, get on to us, we'll we'll respond very very quickly, and you'll be become active. Then it's just a matter of of. Uh, Whenever you go out, uh, putting up your, your information and it's very easy to use and uh, I'm a regular user myself whenever I can get out to go and do a bit of fishing. As every angler likes to do, William Roach, Senior Research Officer at Fisheries Ireland there. So, shore and sea anglers, your help is sought. Fisheries Ireland website under IMREC has all the details. Lifeboat crews who are amazing in how they react to emergencies at any time, day or night, in any weather, fair or foul, do not seek attention or mention for what they achieve, even though they thoroughly deserve it. So, here's a story of one who deserves special mention, as recounted by Neil Stevenson, Irish media manager at the RNLI. Recognition for services or call-outs, or if you want to be very in the know, shouts, is not something lifeboat crews seek. It makes them uncomfortable, but part of me feels it isn't really about them. I think in some way it's the RNLI thanking the families, friends and employers of the rescuers who take great pride in seeing the achievements of their loved ones or employees who drop everything, often running off in the middle of some activity and going out on the water to save a life. I have often read a return of service written by a crew member, where you would be forgiven for thinking that they simply launched the lifeboat and brought a vessel home. I've learned over the years to ask the right questions. It's not so much like pulling teeth anymore when they know that you look at conditions, location, time spent at sea and a few targeted questions, which often gets you an incredible rescue story. In some cases too, if you're lucky, a colleague or someone else on scene will relay the facts and you will know this is worthy of recognition. 
A recent award that was long overdue was to a good lifeboat friend of mine, Dave Maloney, the former lifeboat operations manager for Rosslare Oranelai, and also a volunteer lifeboat press officer for the station at one brief stage. Something I'm sure he never imagined for himself. I met David after a service off the Wexford coast, which I had written up. In capturing the details, I had neglected to mention the role of a flanking station, his, whose volunteers played a vital part in the rescue. He was rightly annoyed with me and I was mortified. It was a valuable lesson and one I never forgot. We became friends from that day on. I came to rely on his no-nonsense advice, which always put the lifeboat crew at the heart. I learned so much about lifeboats from talking to David. What to listen to for when a lifeboat person was talking and importantly, what they were not saying, which was often vital. David's rescue was back in 2016. His award is a commendation from the operations director of the RNLI for his actions, which saved the life of a woman trapped in a cabin on a yacht which had been dashed on rocks. In the early hours of the morning and during a strong northwesterly gale, a small yacht owned and crewed by a Swedish couple entered Rosslare Harbour. On arrival, the engine stalled and the yacht was blown onto a rock armour where it was pummeled by waves. A call for help was raised and Rosslare lifeboat was launched. However, due to the location of the small vessel, the lifeboat was unable to reach it from the water. David and his friend, Ornali volunteer Jamie Ryan, arrived at the scene to see a man standing on the quay wall, clearly in shock. They learned it was his vessel and incredibly that his partner was still on board and trapped. Jamie discussed the option of using a rope which could be put around David's waist to reach the woman, but they both realised there was no time for this. The woman was in immediate risk of being pulled out to sea and lost right before their eyes. Using his lifeboat knowledge and with the waves pummeling the vessel, Dave manoeuvred across the rocks, reaching the yacht and stepping into the cabin. Once there, he took hold of the woman, who was clearly in shock, and managed to bring her out of the cabin and up to the safety of the key wall. He never sought recognition for his actions that night, and they might have gone unremarked, but the station put him forward for his role in the rescue. Now, I won't point out the irony of a press officer neglecting to promote his own good news story, and I've since forgiven him for it. So I rang him the other day as I thought I should tell him that I would be recounting this story for Tom in my own words. I was ready for the telling off and I had my defence prepared, but I was pleasantly surprised. Send me a link to that, he says. I'd like to give it a listen. Praise indeed. Neil Stevenson reporting. So well done to Dave Maloney of Rosclare and the RNLI. Winter at sea is a tough time. Justin Marr recalls some incidents at sea in the month of November in the turning of the tide. The past two and a half years of global pandemic have led to shortages in goods and ships have piled up outside of ports. The Evergivens mishap temporarily closed a route that's used by 50 large ships every day. Scores of vessels were left waiting in maritime traffic jams at either end. The onset of the war in Ukraine has sent shockwaves throughout the global economy. 
Energy price inflation intensified over the summer as concerns grew regarding a complete shutdown of Russian gas supplies. We've been reminded at great cost recently that supply lines are vital. The wholesale price of natural gas is now around eight times its average level in the years preceding the war. Disrupting them leads to shortages, inflation, and many more compound effects to the economy and society. War often disrupts supply lines. This was the case with Britain during World War II. Much of the food, clothes, and fuel needed by the British came from abroad. The war prevented a lot of those supplies from arriving. Irish merchant shipping ensured that Irish exports reached Britain during the conflict, referred to by Irish mariners as the Long Watch. But it came at a huge cost. Casualties were heavy. On the 12th of November 1940, the SS Ardmore was one of the vessels that paid the ultimate price. The Ardmore was owned by the City of Cork Steam Packet Company. She traded mainly between Cork and Liverpool as a cattle ship, but in 1939 started trading between Cork and Fishguard. At 8pm on the 11th of November 1940, she sailed out of the port of Cork with a crew of 24 men aged between 18 and 65, most of them coming from Cork and Dublin. She held about a thousand cattle and pigs and other agricultural goods. The weather that day was severe, with many ships staying in port, electing not to risk the treacherous conditions. However, Ardmore's captain, Thomas Ford, decided to set sail. At around 11pm that night, she was spotted off Knockadoon Head. It was the last time she was sighted. She would never reach her destination. Over the following days, air and sea searchers could find no trace of the ship or her crew. A few weeks later, some wreckage and livestock from the ship washed ashore on the Pembrokeshire coast in Wales and on the salty islands off County Wexford. A month later, the bodies of Captain Thomas Ford, able seaman Frank O'Shea and cattleman Michael Raymond were found on the Pembrokeshire coast. But the location of the ship and the cause of her sinking were unknown. It was believed that she had struck a mine, but it would be over 50 years before she was found. During the summer of 1995, diver Eugene Keogh from Kilmore Quay discovered the wreck of a ship on the seabed off the Great Salty Island. It wouldn't be identified as the SS Ardmore until 1998, following a private investigation by Peter Mulvaney from Dublin. Further research led to the conclusion that the Ardmore had suffered a large explosion to its midsection, causing the ship to sink immediately with its crew trapped aboard. In April 1998, a special mass of remembrance was held to honour the Ardmore crew. At a reception following the mass, then Minister of State at the Department of the Marine, Hugh Byrne, presented family members of each of the crew with an Emergency Mercantile Marine Medal. Shortly afterwards, the relatives had a bronze memorial plaque commissioned and placed on the Pemrose Quay side of the Michael Collins Bridge, the spot where the SS Ardmore would have docked and where she had left from on that fateful night in November 1940. In November of 1999, an inquest found that the ship's crew had died as a result of an explosion on board the Ardmore off the Great Salty Island. Peter Mulvaney told the inquest that the deaths of the crew were due to warfare. Only 56 ships were part of the Irish mercantile fleet in the days following the outbreak of World War II, 
By the time the conflict ended, 16 had been lost, along with the lives of 136 seamen. November is a bad month for Arctic sea ice. And it was in November of 2017 on this program that Tom interviewed Captain David Duke Snyder, one of the leaders of the earliest ever voyage through the legendary Northwest Passage that year. Captain Snyder, a master mariner with 33 years' experience under his belt aboard naval, commercial and coast guard vessels in polar regions, had helped the Finnish icebreaker MSV Nordica make headlines around the world for that landmark voyage. He told Tom what it was like to journey through the Arctic sea ice. When you're actually in the midst of it in a full ice field and an icebreaker, uh, it is pretty ominous. Uh, the, the ship movement is, is like no other. Uh, you're, you're reacting to the, the ice uh, and, and it's, a, it's more of a, a grinding lurching. It's the noise, I think, that I find the most fascinating. Uh, depending on the ship again, uh, it's uh, the, the crunching, the grinding, and, and, and the, sometimes the scream of uh, the ice as it scrapes down the side of the ship. Uh, it's pretty awe-inspiring uh, to be on board an icebreaker in a field of ice, that's for sure. Extraordinary vessels. Absolutely, uh, you know, and, and uh, really at the peak of technology for, for shipbuilding. Um, the, the hull designs are totally different than uh, what you need for efficiency in open water, which makes them unkindly sea boats in an open sea. Um, truth be told, uh, the reason I gravitated towards icebreaking over anything else is I have my tendencies to seasickness, and I've never got seasick in an icebreaker. The movement's that different. One thing listeners will be astonished to, to find out, how do they protect their engines, their propellers, as they force their way through? Because presumably the ice is still there coming back at them. How are they protected that they don't get into trouble? Well, most modern icebreakers to, to start off with are, are typically a double hulled. Um, so, you know, there's that second hull that's protecting uh, the tanks and the, the in, interior spaces from, from any over damage that, that we certainly want to prevent. Um, propellers, uh, the, uh, the thrusters are, are usually uh, very robust, much more robust uh, in construction that you're going to get from any uh, conventional ship. And oftentimes the, the hull is designed to shield them and uh, keep them, for the most part, out of the way of ice. But nothing is uh, fully protected, and uh, you know, on occasion, even the, the the highest ice class designs will will suffer some propeller damage or thruster damage. But uh, it's certainly our job to try and keep that to a minimum. And finally, Duke, this first historic in its way voyage so early in the year, does it indicate that global warming is a reality from what you've seen? I absolutely think it's an indicator, um, and uh, I, I want to make it perfectly clear that global climate change is clearly evidenced in the in the Arctic. In, in my years up there, uh, I can absolutely attest to the changes. Um, we're fully aware that there are cyclical changes, and you know there are cycles of 11 years and 50 years at, uh, of good and bad ice years. We're still seeing those, but there's a massive underlying gradual reduction in overall ice extent and, and ice thickness. Uh, I think more correctly, though, um, 
you have to take in context that this is also technology. Um, very well-found ships, well-designed, um, you know, high horsepower, um, excellent planning going into it. The team from Arctia um, had worked for two years before they did a Northwest Passage, two years previously, doing the latest passage ever. So with that information, the information we had looking at the ice conditions, um, with the, the benefit of, of modern satellite imagery and, and all of that we had with us, um, we could pick a good route, uh, pick the least uh, risky route because of the technology we had at hand. So I, I wouldn't want to go out and say, this proves climate change but it certainly was enabled by climate change to some degree. Captain David Duke Snyder, ice navigator aboard the MSV Nordica, which made the earliest ever voyage through the Northwest Passage in 2017. And so we end the November edition of Maritime Ireland, broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and on podcast services by giving a thought to Ireland's Pat Lawless, sailing in the Golden Globe solo round-the-world race in older boats as the fleet nears Cape Town in South Africa as we compiled this edition. 66-year-old Pat reported to race headquarters that he had a scare when he thought he had discovered rat droppings on board his Saltram Saga 36 Green Rebel. I screamed, it turned out to be black pepper, but my heart it gave me quite a shake, he said. His knee and ribs, which he hurt earlier in the race, have improved. He's going well, but still with about 20,000 miles to go to the finish. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Your views and opinions very welcome. The programme website is at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie and we're on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. From me, Tom McSweeney, until next month's programme and particularly to Pat Lawless, the usual wish of fair sailing.